It's a great pleasure to have uh, Professor Ray Goldstein to come uh, and give a colloquium here. And uh, Ray is at uh, Cambridge in the Department of Applied Mathematics and uh, Theoretical Physics. He's carrying on uh, the tradition of uh, Jerry Taylor, um, who was uh, not only a great theorist, but uh, also equally great experimentalist, and uh, was remarkable for his great breadth of interest. And uh, Ray is going to tell us uh, about, uh, I think he's going to relate uh, the behavior of a microscopic creature to uh, to very large scale questions of evolution. Thank you, Boris, uh, very much uh, for the invitations to be here. <laughs> I, uh, I thought the best way to start this talk was to tell you an anecdote. Several years ago, I was visiting a major research university that shall remain unnamed in North America. And uh, I met there the director of an institute in, uh, for physics. And uh, he asked me what I did. And when I told him that I worked a lot on biological fluid mechanics, he, he looked me in the eye and he said, is fluid mechanics important for biology? And um, I actually didn't know where to begin. I, I could have said perhaps the heart or the lungs or the ears or the kidneys or many examples. Uh, but actually, now I do know where to begin. And uh, I thought this was a, a useful way of kind of motivating what I want to talk about today. Because actually, if we start with Leonardo's uh, very famous uh, Vitruvian Man that was uh, produced in the late 1400s, we see here a, a beautiful celebration of the proportions of the human body, the wonderful inscribed circles and squares that you can draw uh, characterizing the lengths of arms and legs. But it's also a potent reminder of the bilateral symmetry that we all know and love about vertebrates. But actually, sorry for the play on words, but symmetry is only skin deep. Because uh, if you look inside all of us, we have fundamental broken symmetries. And there are three of them, top, bottom, front, back. And the very last one to occur in development is the left-right symmetry of the developing organism. And I'm sure if I asked you how many of you have your heart on the left-hand side of your body, nearly every hand would go up. But it doesn't have to be every hand, because there are some people who have their body plan reversed. Now, I bring this up because, actually, if you look at the uh, reference I put here for this picture that shows the broken symmetry of the human, it's the Annual Review of Fluid Mechanics. And that's because one of the great discoveries in biology in the last 10 or 15 years or so is that, that the mechanism by which the left-right symmetry is broken in the human body is a problem in fluid mechanics. Now, you might think... That's a bit silly. But actually, if we look inside the developing vertebrate embryo, and here's an example from the mouse, there's a small region of the embryo known as Henson's node. It's a fluid-filled chamber, flat and circular, several hundred microns across, at the base of which are cells which have emanating from them tail-like appendages known as cilia. And as you see them here, these cilia beat in a concerted fashion, tilted with respect to the plane of that tissue, in such a way as to set up a circulating fluid flow in the chamber with a definite handedness. Here's left, right, anterior, posterior. And that fluid flow interacts with chemical messengers to break the left-right symmetry of the developing embryo. And we know this is the case because the experimentalists who discovered this mechanically went in and stirred the fluid the other way, and the mouse ended up with its heart on the other side. That's pretty amazing, right? Now, these cilia are very much like the cilia in our bodies. They're in our brains, in our respiratory system, in our reproductive system, in our kidneys. They're everywhere pushing fluid around. And in fact, they are nearly identical 
to the flagella, as they're called when they're longer, by which microorganisms, such as this simple photosynthetic green alga called Chlamydomonas, swims through its fluid environment. These microscopic appendages are about 10 or 12 microns long and allow this organism to swim. And in fact, this structure, this eukaryotic cilium or flagellum, is one of the most highly conserved structures in biology. This organism appeared on Earth the better part of a billion years ago, and yet the protein content of those flagella is essentially identical to the cilia in film. <laughs> and uh, now, <laughs> the, the fact that this you know, the, the fact that this is so highly conserved certainly answers the question: in fluid is fluid mechanics important for biology? It's from the point of view of physiology and development. One of the reasons I'm here this week is that there's a meeting at the KITP about the evolution of multicellularity, and there's growing body of evidence that these organelles have played an important role in a very fundamental question in biology, which I think is sort of number three on the list of fundamental questions, the first one being the origin of life, and the second being the nature of consciousness, the third being how was it and why was it that the simplest unicellular organisms that first appeared on Earth eventually decided it was better from a fitness point of view to become multicellular and to differentiate into specialized cells and divide up the functions of life. So those are the kinds of issues that sort of sit over what I want to talk about today. And to illustrate uh, very interesting biological observations that point the way into this question, I want to first start by showing you a very interesting plot of data that was first presented to the world by Bell and Moores and then represented by John Bonner, a very distinguished evolutionary biologist at Princeton who spent the last probably nearly 70 years uh, worrying about this question of the evolution of complexity. So this is a compilation for organisms of many different types in the living world on a log-log plot showing the number of types of cells, distinct cell types in an organism, as a function of the number of cells in the body. So a humble bacterium sits down here. It has one cell, obviously, and one cell type because it does everything. Now, a highly developed organism uh, like us is typically a tenth of a cubic meter in size, and a cell is 10 microns on a side, on average, and that's 10 to the 14th cells. And so we humans sit just off the top of this graph at about 210 distinct cell types. Now, speaking to a physics audience, and many of you are probably statistical physicists by religion or otherwise, um, <laughs> you, you might be tempted to say, hmm, there might be a power law here. Uh, and uh, I'm here to say, no, don't do that. Um, actually, because I don't think that a single number would be particularly important at this point in trying to understand the general observation that as things get larger, they get more complex. It's a very noisy data graph. I suggest, and many other people have said this before, that we should be reductionist in trying to think about this. And let's focus in the lower left-hand corner of this diagram and try to ask ourselves the question, as I increase the number of cells in an organism from one up to hundreds or thousands, and I first see the appearance of two cell types instead of one, can I understand that? I think that's a, a basic question, which if we can't answer, we're not going to be able to answer the rest of this. Now, whenever we're confronted with these kinds of big questions in biology, it's typical, conventional, to look for model organisms that can allow us to make progress. And a model organism here means an organism that the community has decided is sufficiently appropriate from the point of view of growing it and studying it and doing genetics and all of this, that everybody descends on it and we have a holistic view of what's going on. Now, um, the hero of today's talk 
is Antony von Leeuwenhoek, who you, whose name I'm sure you know, not the inventor of the microscope, but the perfecter of it. And I'm going to tell you about a model organism which actually he discovered late in life using this amazing microscope. Now, I was recently in the Borhaut Museum in Leiden, and I acquired a copy of it. And I'll pass it around. It's quite extraordinary. At a time when there were compound microscopes with multiple lenses, he came along and figured out how to make fantastic single lenses about a millimeter in diameter. If you hold this up to your eye, take your glasses off, hold it up to your eye, look at the light, you'll see the tip of a pin, which is an XYZ translation stage on the end there. And with that, he discovered bacteria and algae and all sorts of amazing things in biology. So, you know, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on confocal microscopes nowadays, but it's good to be reminded that um, one can see a lot just by looking. So, late in his life, he discovered a very beautiful organism, which he wrote about in, in one of his many letters to the Royal Society of London. And um, it's got a title which I wish I could use in Fizra letters. <laughs> the animalcula in the excrements of frogs <laughs> and other such things. But what he describes, shown in his figure five, is a spherical organism about half a millimeter across, which to him just had a bunch of dots on its surface and smaller spheres on the inside, and persistently rotated around the body-fixed axis. And it was not until nearly 60 years later that Linnaeus, who's the namer of everything originally in biology, in the very last entry in his book, uh, gave it the name Volvox for the Latin root to spin or to roll. Think of the Volvo car. Um, and in the Latin down here, it's described as somehow spinning without paws or arms. But I will tell you that the way this organism moves is by those very flagella, which I described to you before. And ever since that time, Volvox has been recognized as a very interesting organism for the study of multicellularity. So I'm going to tell you a lot about this organism and about Chlamydomonas, the first single cell model that I showed you. Here's a modern view of Volvox. So this is using a tracking microscope in my lab where we actually have a microscope on a feedback control on a motorized stage, following it as it swims up against gravity. So what you see is a sphere covered with about 1,000 cells, each of which has two of these flagella. It beats from the North Pole to the South Pole with a slight east-west twist, so the whole thing spins around an axis. It's got daughter colonies on the inside, and like many of us, it's bottom heavy. That is, it has its daughter colonies in the posterior half. So it has a feature like a ship with a heavy keel that actually rights itself and swims up. And if you put a laser sheet in there and microspheres in there, you can actually track the fluid flow around this organism in its frame of reference and allow for very precise studies of those fluid flows as a way of connecting the microscale driving of the motion by those thousands of flagella and the macro large-scale flow that you see. So this is what uh, it looks like in real life. And I've now described to you two interesting organisms. First is Chlamydomonas, 10 microns across with these flagella. And Volvox, much larger. And here for scale, you see the two. And this is basically composed of Chlamydomonas-like cells arranged on the surface of an extracellular matrix. But what you see here is a single organism that does all the functions of life. And here, something miraculous has happened. This organism has sterile somatic cells on the surface. We'll call them galley slaves. All they do is swim. And on the inside, all of the reproductive functions are sequestered in specialized germ cells that grow up to become the next generation. So this is the most elementary distinction in biology between reproduction and everything else. And it happened as a function of size. So nature has been actually very kind to us because if I look at a family portrait of all the organisms sort of descended from I see that they are arranged in a geometric sequence, basically species that are made of two to the n of these Chlamydomonas-like cells in some kind of loose arrangement. These are distinct species. I mean, they're 
strongly bound to each other. They live their life with 8 or 16 or 64 cells. And by the time you get to the larger ones, they have this distinct extracellular matrix. But the most important thing is that there's this very sharp dividing line. All the species to the left of this line have essentially every cell doing every function of life, reproduction and everything else. And then there's this sharp, let's call it a phase transition, beyond that, where nature's decided two cell types are better. And this germ soma differentiation, as I say, is very fundamental. And I think that it would be nice if we could have an answer to the question, why did nature put this dividing line here? What's special about this number of cells, or this size of an organism, that suddenly makes it, from a fitness point of view, better to have a division of labor? That's the kind of big question that sits over all of this. I'll give you some hints at possible answers, but I want to start by talking a little about the physics of these organisms, what matters and what doesn't in the environment in which they live. So these are aquatic, freshwater aquatic organisms. They swim through their fluid environment. As, as you know, if I talk about my swimming in the swimming pool, I'm at high Reynolds number, meaning inertia is important and viscous, viscous damping is small. But it's also important in life to think about the metabolic activity, the uptake and release of nutrients and waste products, essentially the transport of molecular species. And so if I am an organism that can move or swim with a velocity u, and I have a length scale <coughs> size l, and the diffusion constant for those molecular species is d, I can ask about the relative time to move by advection the length scale l, l over u, and the diffusion time, which would be l squared over d, and I can perform the ratio of those two. And we call that the Peclé number. And dimensionally, it's UL over D. And that looks just like the Reynolds number, UL over nu, the kinematic viscosity of the fluid. However, the kinematic viscosity of water is in CGS units 10 to the minus 2. And a diffusion constant is three orders of magnitude smaller. So that means that even an organism that's small and lives in a world that's absolutely dominated by viscosity, so it's a very low Reynolds number, like this organism, is actually in a regime where the balance between advection and diffusion is just about order 1. So Chlamydomonas, which is 10 microns in size, can swim at 50 microns a second, something like this, is actually in a world where diffusion and advection just about balance. But by the time you get to Volvox, which is much, much larger, can swim much, much faster, it's actually in a world dominated by advection. The Peckley number is several hundred. So that has been one of the possible suggestions about why it is that, and it's more complicated than what I'm saying, but why it is that these have such different uh, structure, namely, this is a, lives in a world dominated by advection, by diffusion, excuse me, and this dominated by advection. So these are two different worlds. Okay, so all of this has to do with the flagella that give rise to motility, and I want to tell you a little bit in your biology lesson today about how we can study these organisms as models for biological fluid dynamics and biophysics. So the life cycle of this organism is extremely interesting. It's very quick and exciting, two days. Uh, so let's pick it up here, where those daughter colonies hatch out of the mother. So think of it as the first day of Genesis. Um, and they have inside of them these little germ cells, which are small and undifferentiated. And during the first day, all that happens is that they grow very large without dividing. And then they go through about 10 cycles of division, binary division, to produce the 2 to the 10 cells of the daughter colony. Now those are actually produced inside out. They're flagella point inward. Yes. Oh, I thought that was a question. No, no, no. Hold it up to your eye. Real close. <laughs> no, no. Well, later. Sorry. <laughs> um, they're produced uh, sort of backwards in the sense that they have their germ cells on the outside and their flagella pointing inward. And a miraculous process occurs, which I wish I could do. Namely, overnight, each of these daughter colonies opens a cross-shaped hole and turns itself inside out. 
So now, it's flagella point out, and life is good. So that you can swim. Right? If you're flagella point inward, you're, you can't swim. The original cells are germ cells or, or somatics? So they have germ cells. Is, the, the germ cells are on the outside, the somatic cells are on the inside, and they're pointing the wrong way. Okay. okay. So the rest of the time of this organism's life is just a kind of inflation. The number of cells is fixed, and all that happens is this extracellular matrix is enlarged, and so the organism just expands in size. And that's very good, because that means that all of the properties of the organism, its radius, its density offset with respect to the water, the spacing between its flagella, slowly vary over time which gives us a path through parameter space to understand the systematics of the biology and the biophysics as a function of size, so that we can try to understand things like the scaling laws for how it operates. Now, here's just a little movie to whet your appetite for uh, this inversion process. I won't say anything more other than just to show you how miraculous this is. This is a time-lapse movie of a process that takes about half an hour or an hour from the group of Nishi in Japan. So here you see this pore, as it's called, open up, four lips peel back, it completely turns itself inside out, and then it starts swimming. So there's a physics problem for you, how to turn yourself inside out and get it right. Okay, so the fact that there is this systematic variation in the properties as a function of size gives us that handle that I was talking about. So here's a graph showing you the, the various properties of this swimming organism as a function of size, but you could read time because they just grow simply. Uh, so here's the speed at which it swims up against gravity. The young ones and the small ones are very fast, and they reach a point where they actually can just barely stay afloat because of their density offset, and so their upswimming speed goes to zero. If you deflagellate them and let them settle, the settling speed increases monotonically, and you can use the laws of Stokes drag to figure out the density offset. And the most important thing here is the spinning frequency of this organism. Remember, Volvox got its name because it rotates. And this spinning frequency is a very strong function of size, uh, dropping by more than an order of magnitude as we get to the larger ones. And there's one other time constant in the problem, which is that bottom heaviness relaxation time. If you tilt a, an object that has a non-uniform distribution of mass in a low Reynolds number environment, it will viscously relax back to vertical. And the time scale for that is set by its size and the viscosity and the offset. And in this case, it's about 10 seconds. So this means you can pick and choose. If you'd like to study the young guys who are fast swimmers uh, and rotate quickly, you just do so. And if you want to study the hoverers, you can do that. And you can discover some rather amazing things. So here is an example of what happens if you put these in a glass-topped container and you look from above as they swim up to the glass ceiling and interact with each other at the top you discover what we have termed a hydrodynamic bound state. So these organisms naturally spin, as I said, and watch this one. This guy swims past, he moves away, and he comes back. So there's an attractive interaction, apparently, between these objects in this low Reynolds number environment. Now, you might think this is something about chemical signaling or something like that, but it turns out, no. It's a purely fluid dynamical effect driven by the presence of this wall on the top, which deflects the flow lines around each organism so that they get sucked up into each other's flow fields and then orbit about each other. So this is a good example, I think, of how these flagellar-driven flows can lead to very unexpected kinds of collective behavior of the organisms. Uh, and in fact, one can describe this absolutely quantitatively, uh, essentially using ideas by your colleague here, uh, Todd Squires, uh, from a number of years ago. Is this the equivalent of a Venturi-like effect? No, this is absolutely velocity. low Reynolds number. So yeah. it's, it's all about just, um, just the steady flow. It's not a pressure-driven effect so much as it is just a, an advection. 
I think you showed a rotation time that was independent of size in the previous slide. Yes. That's the bottom heaviness relaxation, oh, not the rotation. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, thank you. Okay. So I've been talking about these cilia and flagella without really telling you how they're constructed. And I need to make a couple of comments about this. So if I take one of these organisms like Clamidomonas and I slice these flagella the long way, I'll see that they're composed microscopically of parallel filamentary objects. If I slice it perpendicular to the long axis, I'll see that those are uh, nine plus two microtubule doublets, as they're called, arranged uh, in a very regular way here. Now, microtubules are polymerized structures made of a protein called tubulin. Your colleague Deborah Feigenson here is one of the world's experts on it. Uh, and these filamentary structures uh, are cross-linked by molecular motors, which consume ATP and essentially walk along the filaments and slide them. And if you clamp them at the base, as they are here, and you slide one filament past the other, it must bend. And this is the origin of bending waves that give rise to locomotion. Now, interestingly, these microtubules are the same structures which, during cell division, as you see here in a different organism, shown in green, pull the chromosomes apart to the two halves of the daughter cell as cell division occurs. So the fact that a cell divides in two, and uh, in the case of Clamidomonas, has two flagella, is because these organizing centers are actually the base of the flagella. Okay. Now, in my lab, we study this by using rather uh, straightforward techniques of microscopy and high-speed imaging. So we have standard inverted microscopes, uh, high-speed cameras, and we use a lot of technology from the world of uh, in vitro fertilization or electrophysiology. Take your pick. Basically, micropipettes controlled by very precise micromanipulators to hold individual organisms for gentle interrogation under the microscope so that we can study uh, their properties. So the first thing I just want to show you is, is a very, not very old, uh, high-speed movie taken at 2,000 frames a second showing you on a big ball box colony uh, from, with some frame subtraction magic here, uh, what a somatic cell's flagella look like. They beat about 25 cycles per second. And as you watch the two of these, you'll be forgiven if you occasionally think that they're sort of synchronizing with each other because they beat together, but then they seem to fall out of sync. And so it could be that these are just two oscillators with slightly different frequencies, which would naturally do that. Or there could be some real interaction between them leading to synchronization. And this is confusing, and I show it for that reason, because we need to be more precise about what's going on. But for a very long time, there has been a lot of speculation about the nature of coordinated movement on these multicellular organisms and what might be the origin of synchronization uh, of these flagella. So the next bunch, the next discussion in this talk is going to be about understanding how these organisms synchronize their flagella. Now, another Dutch scientist made a very important contribution to the theory of and the experiment of synchronization. You may know all about the Huygens clock synchronization. How many know? More of you should know this. So, very famous experiment by Huygens, which he observed that nearby pendulum clocks on some kind of flexible support, like a wall or a chair, would synchronize their pendula pretty much independent of their initial conditions. And you might think it has something to do with the air in between, but what he showed was that it was actually vibrations in the wall or the support that led to this coordinated motion. And this has been recreated in a beautiful experiment by Mike Schatz's group at Georgia Tech with modern pendula and beams and carts and pulleys and all these things to study this in great detail. Now, just to show you how it can be that oscillators of the type of these flagella, let's say, or in general, uh, dynamic mechanical oscillators can synchronize, here's a little YouTube video that illustrates something you can do at home. All you have to do is buy five metronomes. <laughs> so these are, I've sped this up by about a factor of two just so it doesn't take so long. 
So these have essentially identical frequencies, but have been started with random phases. They're sitting on a piece of wood, which he will lift up and place on these two soda cans, allowing side-to-side -side motion. Didn't take very long before they synchronized. Now, the guy in the center is slow to get the message. But as I speak, you will see that he too synchronizes. So what this shows is a very simple kind of coupling between oscillators, let's call it, that can lead to synchronization. So the question has been, for many years, could it be that the fluid between these beating flagella, for instance, provides the coupling that leads to synchronization? Or could it be the matrix in which they all emanate from? What is the origin of the various kinds of synchronization I will show you? See? It works. Right. Okay, so Boris, um, uh, in his introduction, mentioned G.I. Taylor, and uh, it was Taylor, in fact, uh, many years ago, who was the one to first point out the possibility that hydrodynamic interactions could lead to synchronization among flagella. He was actually interested in an observation by Lord Rothschild, who studied the swimming of sperm cells. And Rothschild had observed that nearby sperm cells would tend to uh, swim in lockstep. They would nest in each other's waveforms and perform a beautiful synchronized motion. So Taylor, in his usual way, said, Look, let's just simplify this into imagining two laterally infinite waving sheets with a prescribed sinusoidal traveling form. And we'll immerse them in a low Reynolds number fluid environment and try to calculate the fluid mechanics between these things, uh, order by order in the amplitude of the motion. And uh, what he was interested in was the rate of energy dissipation in the system, because there was this idea that maybe the nested configuration was somehow more efficient. So you can calculate the fluid mechanics. And it's pretty clear, if you just think intuitively, that the Rate of energy dissipation in a fluid goes like the square of the gradient of the velocity field. So the more shearing you're doing, the more heat you're dissipating. And so a situation like this, where they're pi out of phase, is going to produce a lot of viscous dissipation relative to the nested state. So he calculated the ratio of energy dissipation in phase versus out of phase as a function of the separation between the sheets. And he discovered when they're far away, of course, the ratio is one. They don't talk to each other. But when they get closer, about the kind of separation you see in the experiment, you can drop the dissipation by a factor of three. And so the, the statement was sort of the obvious one. Yes, indeed, if you synchronize, you will lower the energy dissipation. That may be why nature does it. But I don't have to tell all of you that that principle, the idea of minimizing dissipation, may be true. But it's not a principle you're going to hang your hat on. It's not an absolutely general principle in physics. And the reason this is insufficient is because it doesn't account for the internal structure of what's building up these waving sheets, the molecular motors that speed up or slow down in response to forces and torques, and ultimately get you to this state. So it's a plausible explanation, but it's not satisfactory. OK, so now I'm going to tell you of a very interesting historical observation about synchronization by two people, Rooker and Nulch, who deserve enormous credit for having first uncovered some fascinating behavior in these systems. It turns out to be the key to understanding what's going on. So back in the mid-80s, they were the first to study the beating dynamics of Chlamydomonas with its two flagella that normally beat in the breaststroke fashion. That's what I hypnotized you with in the beginning before I began speaking. Uh, and they would put it on a micropipette and laboriously track the uh, results of high-speed imaging that they could obtain over a fraction of a second using old-fashioned technology. That means film. They would project frame by frame on a wall, trace the waveform, and from that calculate things. Like, what is the frequency of beating as a function of time of the left and the right flagellum? 
And what they saw 85% of the time when they grabbed an organism from solution was that the two flagella beat with identical frequencies. They might fluctuate a bit from beat to beat, but it was identical. And that is the characteristic breaststroke motion that this organism has. About 10% of the time, every once in a while, one flagellum would beat transiently faster than the other and then resynchronize. And we'll see that that's an example of a phase slip in nonlinear dynamics, which many of you are probably familiar with. And about 5% of the time, they would see two very different frequencies, perhaps 20 or 30% different, as if the two flagella did not see each other at all. Now, their interpretation of this was very much like what you might imagine uh, looking out over this audience. You might say some people are really coordinated and some people are not so coordinated. And so they said these are distinct subpopulations of cells. So what I'm going to tell you is how using modern techniques of fluid mechanics and theoretical physics and microscopy, we're going to understand what's going on here. We'll find that they're absolutely correct in all of these observations, but unfortunately they're wrong in this interpretation. But it doesn't take anything away from the super important work that they did. They were simply not equipped technologically and conceptually to understand what was going on. So now the question is, if I make a measurement on these organisms and they're beating flagella, how am I going to quantify it? So imagine I have here, and I'll show you a movie in a moment, uh, a movie from which I have uh, the two flagella highlighted and I can watch the beating dynamics. What am I supposed to measure? These are complicated undulating waveforms. You might imagine I have to track the whole thing. But one simple way to look at it, which turns out at first to be the right way, is to just say, look, the stroke of these two flagella is some amplitude and some, let's say, cosine of a time-dependent angle that just measures where I am in each orbit. And I might have different natural frequencies of these two flagella, but basically the dynamics of each angle would just be linear variation in time if there was no coupling between them. And so I could construct, for instance, a dimensionless measure of the phase difference between these two oscillators and use that as a measure of synchronization. And if they were, they were uncoupled, then it would just advance in the So let's see what happens now with modern high-speed imaging. This is not a super great image, but it's historically important, so I show it. So this is climbing to Monas, beating with its two flagella at about 55 cycles per second, frames subtracted to highlight the flagella. And you see this very nice regular in-phase beating. But just keep watching. Oops, right? Something went wrong. And this is an example of that 10% of the time slip where one flagellum went faster than the other. So that's just a restatement of what uh, Rooker and Nolte saw. But now let's try to see what this looks like from a data point of view. So what we do uh, computationally, uh, analytically, is to erect little interrogation windows on either side of the cell body and track the pixel intensity over time as a way of knowing when this organism goes through its cycle. So we basically make a kind of Poincaré section. And so if I plot this delta, remember the phase difference divided by 2 pi, as a function of time over about 4 seconds, the first thing you note is that in blue, it's a noisy signal. And it fluctuates around some mean value. And then over the course of about a second or so, it transitions to another mean value, just one different. So that is the gain or loss of one complete cycle. And if you look at the actual signals, you see nice synchrony, a loss of synchrony, and regaining it. So, in a sense, this is just a nice modern reanalysis of what Riffer and Nilch did. But I have a lot of high, a lot of memory on my high-speed camera. I don't have to stop at four seconds. We can look at a minute or two. We can actually look at 20 minutes now at, at very high speed. And this is what you see for a single cell over the course of a bit more than a minute. Well, it's all over the place. And within this, you actually see 
a period of synchrony, noisy synchrony around a fixed value. You see phase slips where you jump up one or actually down one. Uh, and you also see periods of effectively straight line motion, which I'll call a drift, where the two oscillators are decoupled from each other. They have observably different frequencies, and therefore the phase difference just moves nearly in time. But this is a single cell. The amazing thing is that if you add up the fraction of time spent in these three states, within experimental error, it's 85-10-5, which is exactly, exactly what Ruffer and Milch saw. And that, my friends, is called statistical physics. Right? You can ensemble average over the population by selecting them and just making small measurements, or you can watch one of them over time, and apparently it stochastically changes from in-phase to out-of-phase and back which is really interesting. So this is a, a problem of noisy oscillators that are somehow coupled with each other. So now I want to make a slight digression about how on earth one would make a model from which to extract from this data microscopic information about what the cell is doing. And this is an application of the spherical cow idea uh, in physics. Okay, so remember I said that these flagella are complicated undulating objects and to describe their motion would mean solving a, a nonlinear, generally fourth order in space, PDE, probably with noise. And to track all of that information and understand what's going on is formidable. On the other hand, there's a school of thought, and I'll show you justification of this, that we can get away with a simplification to the problem in which the flagella are just thought of as spheres moving in some orbit specified by internal forces push it around and keep it on a particular orbit. And that this problem of the flow fields could be understood by models based on spheres interacting that way. Now that sounds a bit ridiculous, but consider the following. This is the experimental time average flow profile around one of these swimming organisms, obtained by rather heroic experiments by my brilliant former student, Peter Drescher, in which one tracks microspheres moving around freely swimming organisms, does a, a translation into their moving coordinate system and averages for weeks. And, and the result that you see is here's where the cell body would be. These are the sort of vortical structures created by these beating flagella, time average. And you see a stagnation point here. You see this swirl. The fluid velocity comes in here and here, goes out here and here. This is the theoretical model consisting of three point forces acting on a low Reynolds number of fluid. Think of them as three spheres. One of the cell body going forward, and two basically at the elbows of these flagella pushing back. And it has all the same structure, the stagnation point, the swirls, the outgoing and ingoing structure. So this shows that actually we have ex post facto justification for this class of models for the flow fields based on spheres. And that's good because we've learned a lot from these models. And I'll show you a simple example of one. This is due to Niedermeyer, Eckhart, and Lenz. But there are various permutations of this that have been studied now by many people. So you model the flagellum as a sphere that's pushed around on a circular orbit by internal forces that represent the molecular motors that give rise to these bending waves. You have a spring that tries to keep them at a fixed radius on that orbit but allows some compliance. And then you have another one over here. And as it moves, it pushes the fluid. That pushes, that deflects the orbit of the second one and possibly leads to synchronization if you want to put a wall in and see what happens. Now, whether you do that or you do something more complicated, when the dust settles from such a calculation, you end up with an equation of motion for the angle difference between these two flagella, which is as I've shown you here. So d 
angle dt looks like the intrinsic frequency difference, as I showed you before, if they were isolated, and some kind of coupling function, which must be periodic in this difference, because it's periodic angle, uh, with a coupling constant that can be related to the physics, physics I told you, the viscosity of the fluid, the size of the sphere, etc. And if that's the only dynamics in the problem, this is known as the Adler equation. It's a very well-known uh, nonlinear ODE for coupled oscillators. And for instance, if there's no intrinsic frequency difference and epsilon is positive, there's a fixed point at zero, which is attractive. So if I perturb these oscillators, they'll come back. Now, Adler's famous for this equation, but it's more famous for inventing the remote control for television. So we have many things to thank him for. What? Yes, it's, it's, yeah, it should be ringing bells all around the room. Right. Okay, so now the other thing is that I showed you that we discovered that actually these dynamics are noisy. That is, delta was a noisy function of time, and that's not the thermal fluctuations of an elastic filament in a heat bath. You can do a calculation, measure those RMS values. It's far too low to explain what's going on. This is internal biochemical noise, just like we have, because our heartbeat is not regular. If it is, you're in trouble. And so the simplest thing to imagine is that that noise has zero mean and this delta function correlated very much like the, the typical kind of bond equation we write down for many processes in colloidal physics. So now the question is, first of all, exactly what is this mechanism of synchronization? And second of all, how do we determine from a time series what's going on here? So the so mechanism, yes. So Kuramoto's uh, very similar. system is just the same except with the summation? Yeah, if you have multiple oscillators. And when you have two, there's just one difference angle, so it's just a single one. Okay, so this elastohydrodynamic mechanism is a really cute mechanism uh, that works as follows. Let's imagine we have these two flagella going around in the same direction on these orbits. And let's suppose this one lags this one. Well, there's a fixed internal force pushing these things around. So if I move out to a larger radius, my velocity must remain the same for the drag force to be the same, but my angular velocity will go down. So this one pushes fluid out this way, which pushes this one out. If it goes out, it slows down, and that allows this one to catch up. If this one leads, it pushes it inward. Therefore, its angular velocity goes up, and therefore, it will catch up. And likewise, if I look at what these guys do to this one, if this one is lagging, it push, pushes it out, it slows down, and so he catches up, etc. It's a very simple mechanism that is a, a way of capturing the elasticity of these orbits that can give rise to synchronization. But now the question is, OK, I have this time series. I believe I have a class of models that looks like this. How on earth am I supposed to measure the intrinsic frequency difference, the coupling constant, and the strength of the noise from a time series? And as in mathematical physics all the time, you map it onto a previously solved problem. Right? So this is in disguise the dynamics of a Brownian particle on a tilted washboard potential. No inertia, overdamped dynamics, viscous drag balances a potential whose derivative is this plus noise. So it's like a little particle hopping on a landscape consisting of a tilt from this term and a cosine from this term. So the interpretation is that periods of synchrony correspond to this little particle sitting at one of the minima. And a phase slip corresponds to a thermally assisted hop, left or right, over these barriers. And so now, actually, there's a set of measurements you can make. Because if I look at the relative hopping probability left to right, that should be related to the Boltzmann factor of the energy difference between the two states. So that gives me one piece of information involving the frequency difference and the effective temperature. And the second thing is if I look at the bottom of one of these wells where I have noisy synchrony, that's like a Brownian particle in a parabolic potential. And the autocorrelation of its position will die off exponentially in time with a prefactor and a time constant related to the things I'm interested in. So terabytes of data later, 
and I really mean that, you can make a probability distribution function for the measured values of the coupling strength as if in units of the mean beating frequency. Now, let me be clear. If there were no noise in this system, this would not be possible because you'd be stuck in a synchronized state. You couldn't measure anything. Because there's noise and you hop around, you can measure it. So the remarkable thing is that the expectation value from that model of Niedermeyer, Eckhart, and Lenz for the coupling constant based on this sphere model is embarrassingly close to what we measured experimentally. And that estimate says it's basically a time constant times the two frequencies of the flagella. And the time constant is related to the viscosity of the fluid, the size and length of the flagella, and its bending stiffness, all of which we know. Can you say again where your noise comes from? I didn't say where it came from. I just said it exists. But it's, uh, it's coming from internal calcium fluctuations, we believe, in the cell. I'll give you some indication for that. And it's much bigger than a thermal. Much bigger than a thermal. Okay, so now look, um, this is a consistency statement. I can't say that this proves that hydrodynamics is responsible, but it shows that the scale of the coupling constant is consistent with hydrodynamics. But really, the most interesting thing is if you make a scatter plot of the measured effective temperature and the frequency difference, the measured frequency difference between the flagella, even when they're synchronized, it sounds like a contradiction, but remember, there's an intrinsic difference and there's what you see. It clusters into two groups. There's one big group corresponding to the noisy synchronized state where this ex uh, intrinsic frequency difference is less than 1% of the mean. So they're, they're finely tuned in their beat frequency. And then there's another class of data, the drift, where obviously just by eye, there's a 20 or 30% difference in the intrinsic frequency. And there's a big gap in between. So this, I'm telling this like a mystery story because that's really how it was with us, and I think it makes it more interesting. This suggests to us that Clamidomonas has two gears. I mean, it has two flagella, obviously, but it has two gears in the sense that there's a low gear in which internally it adjusts the frequency difference between its flagella to be small enough that they are synchronized by whatever is doing the synchronization, say hydrodynamic. And there's a high gear where they tune the frequency difference uh, to be large enough to desynchronize. And this is not a fantasy. It's well known that there's an intrinsic frequency difference between the flagella that's under the control of the calcium level in the cell. So now I ask you, if you were like this, and every once in a while, your right foot walked faster than your left foot, what would happen? Right? Okay, forget gravity. You'd turn, and then you'd keep moving in a straight line. But then it would happen again. Maybe it was your left foot. You'd turn again. You would execute a random walk. So this led us to think that actually Clamidomonas in its everyday life should diffuse, because a continuum limit of a random walk is diffusion. And unfortunately, there was no good measurement of the diffusion constant of these organisms and therefore, we set out to find a simple experiment to do it. And it's like this. You take a cuvette, so large for a spectrophotometer, you fill it with a solution of clamidomonas, you centrifuge them gently to the bottom, and you let them, by their random motion, refill the container over time. So you put it in front of a backlight, you look at the intensity of scattering, and look at the leading edge, where the concentration is low and there are no important interactions. You average over this direction. And you measure out here two things the flux of cells across a fiducial, fiducial line, and the concentration gradient at that point. And if you make a plot of one versus the other and you get a straight line, it's called fixed law. From that, you get the diffusion constant. And out of that is a diffusion constant with this funny number. Let's call it 1 times 10 to the minus 3 centimeters squared per second. You might think that's meaningless to me. But remember that if, if you have a random walk where you move with a velocity u, and every time tau you turn, 
by dimensional analysis, the diffusion constant must be u squared tau. Now, we know the swimming speed. It's 100 microns per second, quite accurately. And therefore, we deduce there's a characteristic time in this system of 10 seconds. We now seek to find the meaning of that. Now, just at the moment that we discovered that, we had finished building this contraption. This is a device to actually track the swimming of microorganisms uh, with high spatial and temporal resolution, but free from any effects of convection that can spoil things on this small scale. So it's an inner chamber about a centimeter on the side and a heat bath with red light illumination to avoid any photo triggering of response in the form of a disk. So we have uh, what's in microscopy is called dark field illumination. Two cameras looking at it from orthogonal directions so we can get the x, y, and x, z coordinates of the organism, synchronize the whole thing, and track the motion in three dimensions. And what we discovered was that if you look at many of these trajectories, like you see here in the sub-volume of the chamber, uh, that there's a sort of meandering motion and then a sharp turn, uh, as you see projected down here, into another meandering motion. And if I color code this by the angular velocity of the tangent vector, and I plot that here, you see it's a sharp turn, and here that angular velocity peaks up several radians per second. That's a signal-like in threshold in the time series. So again, cover back some data later, you can ask about things like the probability distribution of this peak turning uh, angle, the turning velocity, about a radian per second. But most importantly, we can compare two types of experiments. One in which this organism is held by a micropipette, and it goes into this drift state where the two frequencies are different. And how long does that last? And you see a probability distribution curve here. And then we can ask about these three-dimensional turns where it's freely swimming, we're not touching it at all. And they overlap precisely. And if you look at the probability distribution of the free flight time, the time between these turning events, it's exponential with a 10-second time scale. Hence, indeed, about every 10 seconds or so under these conditions, it desynchronizes its two flagella. It tumbles, resynchronizes, moves off in a new direction. Now, for those of you in biophysics, this may sound familiar. Because if you look at the motion of a multiply flagellated prokaryotic organism like E. coli, which is sitting in your gut, uh, you'll discover that it has this very classic run and tumble locomotion. And it works in the following way. My cursor will work up. Hello. Sorry. Uh, basically, there are rotary motors that turn each of the flagella in the cell body. And if they're all turning in the same direction, there's a kind of superhelix of these helical flagella that forms behind the organism and gives straight line motion. And there's a stochastic process where one or other of these motors reverses its direction. The bundle flies apart. The cell tumbles for a little bit. Then it resynchronizes and moves off in a new direction. And this, as you see in the movie from Howard Berg's group, this very famous movie, uh, shows you examples of that with fluorescent labeling. And this tumbling is widely distributed at an angle. And this random walk for bacteria is known as a way of searching space and measuring concentration gradients. When you're so small, you can't do that by sitting still. For our system, we have, A, no idea why it does this. We have no idea how it does this. And so hopefully the next time I'm here, I'll be able to tell you that. But it's a real mystery. And yet it's a fundamental observation about how eukaryotic organisms regulate their, their locomotion. So it's run and turn, not run and tumble. OK. But so far, I really haven't been able to test this elastohydrodynamic model very much because I made a measurement, one measurement of the coupling constant. But yet the prediction is that the strength of the coupling is a very strong function of the flagellar length because that controls the flexibility 
you just think of beam physics. Deflection goes like, like Q. So it turns out there's a way to learn more. And that is to take advantage of a process called autotomy, self-cutting or self-scission of these organisms. So if you stress an organism like Phymidomonas by taking another micropipette and gently pulling on its flagella, it will say, OK, take them. <laughs> we'll give them up. It will shed them. They'll also do this under shear. And then they'll grow back in about two hours. Now, two hours is an eternity for these experiments. You can measure synchronization in a matter of two minutes. So as they grow back, we can study the synchronization. So here's a growth curve. This shows you the length of the flagella in minutes after the deflagellation event. You can't really measure them much before about 10 minutes. But eventually, you see this nice it's like overshoot, but nice regular behavior as it regrows its flagella in about an hour and a half. And the blue curve is the result of a, a little model called the balance point model for the transport of monomers that make up the flagella. And it's a pretty good accounting curve. So we can know the length of the flagella at any time. And this is the crucial observation. So I have, on a log log scale, again, this phase difference as a function of time, a different number of minutes after deflagellation, you should think of length increasing. So 20 minutes, when they're real short, there's no discernible synchronization at all. They're just two oscillators with slightly different frequencies with phase difference monotonically increasing. Same at 30 minutes, but by 40 minutes, you start to see a plateau. By the time you get to 90 minutes, there are these very strong plateaus. So before I say anything else, this is a strong indication that length really matters for this synchronization, which is interesting and important, I think. Oh, thank you. Okay, so by the same principles I showed you before, from these time series, we can extract the coupling strength and the intrinsic frequency difference and the basic frequency. And what you see is that the coupling strength is a very strong function of the length of the flagella and dives apparently to zero at about three microns long. Likewise, actually, the frequency difference between the flagella also dives to zero at that point. So it's a very strong function of length. And we can make a test of this elastohydrodynamic model by plotting what's supposed to scale linearly, namely the coupling constant to the one-third, the intrinsic frequency to the two-thirds as a function of length. And these straight lines indicate to us, again, consistency with this elastohydrodynamic model. It's not a proof, but it's consistency. OK. So one of the advantages of, of uh, being in my department is we have lots of different kinds of scientists around. In my group, we have a mix of biologists, and chemists, and physicists. And uh, one of my biology postdocs, Kyriakos Leptos, said that maybe we should start studying some mutants in this system and see if they can give us a hint as to what's going on. Now, there are many interesting mutants of Chlamydomonas, and one in particular is what well, was a class of mutants that are defective in their ability to do phototaxis, that is, to move to the light. And these are interesting because it turns out the uh, phenomenology of their behavior is very close to various human ciliopathies in development that give rise to rather unfortunate syndromes like Bardet-Beetle syndrome, where there are all sorts of things wrong with your cilia. And one in particular of these uh, phototactic mutants, PTX1, was the one we first studied. So whereas the normal wild-type behavior is this in-phase synchronization in the breaststroke with occasional glitches, but basically in-phase synchronization, the amazing thing about this mutant is that it's anti-phase synchronization. Okay, So it's the freestyle as opposed to the breaststroke. Now, if you think about it, this is a problem for that elastohydrodynamic model, because the only way to get it to do this is to change the sign of the coupling constant. Now, we're not about to admit that the viscosity has changed sign. Um, uh, the stiffness of the flagellum has not changed sign. 
And actually, there are problems with changing the sign of the, of the spring constant. So there's something more going on here. I'm not going to tell you yet. I'm not going to tell you at all, actually, what the answer is, because we don't really know. But this is a real challenge to theory, to explain how, by somehow changing the waveform, you can see it's a different waveform. And actually, the frequency, somehow the mode of synchronization is completely the opposite. So this is a story still to be finished. And the last thing I'll say about this synchronization problem is just a comment about another response of these organisms that's very interesting. So they're photosynthetic. They need light. But they know that if they get to the light that's too bright, it can damage them. There can be all sorts of photooxidative reactions that give trouble. So they have developed what's called the photoshock response. If I shine a really bright light on them, they will try to get away. And we can see this in this high-speed movie from my uh, student, Kirsty Wong, who's done uh, amazing work on this. You will see shortly some flashes that represent just a camera flashing. And it does this. Okay, so, so it goes to a completely different waveform. It's a more sperm-like waveform in front, and that makes it move back. So that's you know, getting away from the light. And this is absolutely known to be a consequence of a huge influx of calcium that is allowed by the photoactivation of calcium channels. This calcium is the regulator of the beating, and it leads to this completely different waveform. Eventually, it dissipates, and you go back to this state. So we actually have a picture here that there are at least three distinct modes of undulation of this eukaryotic cilium, the normal waveform at 55 hertz, the antiphase state at 85 hertz, and this one at 140 hertz. And this idea that deep inside the elastohydrodynamics of molecular motors giving rise to waves are these sort of discrete modes is something that has been uh, advanced by, among other people, Frank Uliker and his group in Dresden in trying to build microscopic models of uh, these flagella. So we think that this may ultimately help in understanding that. Okay, so now I want to close in the last five or six minutes with just a, a brief discussion about getting back to these multicellular organisms, how they actually operate. And I think that if, if we're going to try to understand driving forces toward evolutionary complexity, we need to understand how the organism works. And here's a very basic question. Volvox has 1,000 or 2,000 cells on its surface. It has no central nervous system. They're all independent players. And to a first approximation, they don't even talk to each other, maybe hydrodynamically a little bit. But if you shine the light, turn the sun on over here, and the axis of the organism is not aligned with it, it will beautifully turn and accurately move to the sun. So if there's no central nervous system telling it what to do, the only answer to the question, how does it do it, must be that each cell has the right program of response to the light so that the whole functions the right way. And then the question is, what is that response? Can we figure that out using physics and biology? So the first thing to tell you is that just like Chlamydomonas, each of the cells on this organism has a primitive photosensor called an eye spot. And you can see them here in red. They're arranged in a very uh, organized fashion so that the uh, flagella and the eye spots are all linked and pushing down and away from the north pole. And in fact, if you squish one of these organisms against the cover slip of a microscope slide, so, and you draw a little arrow from the center of each somatic cell to the eye spot, and call that a spin, uh, this looks like a ferromagnet. And in biology parlance, that's a, an example of planar cell polarity, PCP. It's a long-range order in the cells that means that every cell is, roughly speaking, experiencing the same kind of conditions in terms of the light falling off. So how does it work? Well, 
If I ask mathematically, how do I describe the motion, let's say the turning angular velocity of a, of a spherical object at low Reynolds number? It would look something like this. The first is, remember these organisms are bottom heavy. So there's a, a tendency for them to right themselves. And so that angular velocity involves a relaxation time multiplying the cross product of the direction of gravity and the axis direction. So only when they're parallel uh, is it happening. And then there's a way of looking at this based on a, a theorem in, in fluid mechanics that was re-expressed by Stone and Samuel some years ago that says that if I knew the fluid velocity on the surface of this sphere, U, and I crossed it into the local normal and integrated it over the whole surface, that's the contribution to the turning of it. And in a sense, if the velocity were everywhere the same, you'd get zero, obviously, by symmetry. So the only way you can turn is if there's some asymmetry in the fluid velocity on the surface. So we're going to take the point of view that rather than study what each flagellum is doing, let's just see what the fluid flow is doing. And then in the frame of reference of the organism, the direction of light just develops by cell and body rotation. So how do you measure this? We again appeal to micropipette technology. So you hold the organism carefully so that you know the direction of its axis. And you bring a tiny optical fiber up to it. And you shine light on it that you can turn on and off at a frequency that mimics the rotational motion of the organism. Because if its axis is not aligned with the sun, then each cell is coming in and out of the light periodically. It turns out these eye spots are very directional. They look only forward, away from the surface. So from behind, they see nothing. So by turning this on and off at different frequencies, we can understand the dynamic response of this system. We can't actually rotate in respect to the pipette? No, we suck. Hard enough? They're, they're rigidly held. Sorry, that was the <laughs> Okay, so here's a good example. I'll show you a step response. So here the light is off. This is with uh, um, microspheres in the system. You can't see the flagella here. And watch right here. You see how the uh, fluid flow slows down and then it recovers. So there's a transient response where the fluid flow decreases, the flagella medium slows down, and then it recovers. And if I if I quantify that, here's a arbitrary units, the fluid flow speed, as I suddenly turn the light on, it's down-regulated. It's like it slows down from the light, and then it recovers over the time course of several seconds. So it's an adaptive response. It's like your nose gets used to a smell, and you don't smell it anymore. So you, you turn the light on, it immediately responds like that, and then it's happy. So how do you describe this? You might think of this as some complicated nonlinear system, but it's really like two capacitors charging. So if we thought, think of what we see as a photoresponse, P, and S as the signal, then there's a kind of capacitor charging problem in which P is responding to the difference between the signal and some second variable, which I call H for hidden, which is some hidden internal relaxation time with a different time scale tau sub A adaptation. And so to the extent that these are mismatched, that drives the dynamics of P, but eventually the system will recover. So it's two characteristic times, I'm not telling you where they come from, two characteristic times giving an adaptive response. And the picture then is that whatever fluid velocity I had before is just modified by this P. So if I know I have an adaptive response, is that enough to understand what's going on? Well, if I change the frequency with which I turn the light on and off and look at the response, I get a resonance. So the normalized depth of that down-regulation of the beating is a very strong function of the frequency with which I turn the light on and off. So if I turn it on and off too slowly, I get no response. Too quickly, I get no response. Right in the middle, I get a big response. And it looks very much like the Fourier transform of that uh, two-variable problem. Now, amazingly, 
this band of frequencies very closely coincides to the orbital frequencies of motion of volvox that are good at phototaxis. And now you can see the answer, because if a patch of real estate starts on the dark side and goes into the light and it downregulates its beating, and it takes about half an orbital period to recover, the net effect will be that the bright side beats less than the dark side, and it'll turn toward the light. And that's an example of what, of what you might think in plant science is called phototropism. Why do plants grow toward the light? Because light inhibits growth, and the dark side grows faster than the light. Okay, so here's, again, that graph I showed you of the orbital frequency of Volvox as a function of its size, and these are the ranges of size over which Volvox is really good at phototaxis. Now, it turns out that adaptive response is fine out here. They're just rotating too slowly to make it work. Okay, so you can put all of this together. You endow a sphere with uh, a set of these ODEs everywhere as an adaptive response. You solve the low Reynolds number hydrodynamic problem. And you have, let's say, the light coming from here, the axis originally pointing up there. And if blue represents strong beating and red represents down-regulated beating, then initially there's that asymmetry. It turns, but as it turns, it's more uniformly exposed to the light and it can recover the original beating it had and it lines up with the light. It's a fixed point. Now, there's a lesson here. I did not have to have any discussion between the thousand cells on the surface. And they managed to execute this collective behavior by just inheriting the right program. And I think that's an interesting example of how we can start to think as physicists about how multicellular organisms function on the way toward developing into things as complicated as us. And then the last thing you can do is say, well, if it functions like this, can I frustrate it? Well, all I have to do is make it slow down so it's no longer tuned like this. And you can do that by adding something to the medium that increases its viscosity. So if you plot a normalized asset for how well it phototaxis somewhere as a function of the um, rotation frequency of the organism, here as a proxy for viscosity going this way, you see that it starts out being fine. <coughs> Eventually, if you slow it down, it cannot do it at all. And it's just because there's a mismatch between these two. Okay, so I'll stop there. I want you to realize that this is the work over many years of a dedicated group of my associates, postdocs and students at Cambridge, chief among them Marco Polin, uh, who's now moving to a lectureship at Warwick, Idan Tuval, a theorist who also participated in experiments now in Mallorca, Kiriakos Leptos, I told you about Gustavo Kastler, also moving to Warwick, and your double a theorist with me who will start at MIT in fall. And most importantly, all of this work began when a then undergraduate with me at the University of Arizona, Sujoy Ganguly, worked with Christian Solari, who was a PhD student at the University of Arizona in ecology and evolutionary biology, and Christian came across the street and said to us, I work on Volvox. I think hydrodynamics has something to do with the way it works. Can you help? And it changed our lives. So thank you. structure. There's no extracellular matrix. 
but there are cytoplasmic bridges uh, between the cells. And there's a very complicated um, series of shape transformations that goes on that makes this inversion, but there's still no extracellular matrix. That happens afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then the cytoplasmic bridges break down, so they're on their own, and somehow this ECM is secreted, and they stay oriented, and we do not know how. But that's a very important question. On one of your initial slides, you have the number of cell types, the number of cells. Mm. And, um, there were, I didn't see any dots where there was one cell type with a number of cells. It always started out with two cell types. Is that uh, you know, a fixed law that you could never take one cell type and make an aggregate of them and do something useful? Well, uh, it was implicit. The one was left off here because it was implicit. Like a bacterium would sit, would sit there. But are there, are there aggregates of single cells? Yes, yes. Uh, OK, yeah, that just was left off. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I should fix that. So, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of uh, the, the, the single cells, I mean, they, uh, uh, bacteria also have different uh, cell types in a way. It's just uh, in the different phenotypic uh, states. Uh, mm. Bacteria can uh, switch uh, yes. to and from, right? So this is sort of proto-differentiation in a way, which just sort of happens in the time domain rather than uh, in space. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, if you think about, space. Think about time in bonus, it goes from uh, reproductive to non-reproductive, you know, at different points in its life cycle, in the sense it oscillates back and forth. Whereas there's terminal differentiation in the Valpatales uh, higher up. You have permanent vegetative state and permanent reproductive state. So yeah, there's a. And there's a well-known, we heard talk about earlier, there's a well-known uh, regulatory structure that is clamping down and preventing the reproductive state from happening. But, but obviously, it has to go back and forth in the single-cell version. So it's a little bit like what you're saying. This but there are no other sort of phenotypic uh, states of uh, the somatic cells other than uh, sort of switching the, the beating frequency. You mentioned I think that's one right. transition. I think that's that correct, but I, I couldn't I couldn't swear by it, but I think that's correct. Yeah. So you showed a graph where the ball as it gets larger, it doesn't rotate. Uh, I mean you, you lose this ability to match the, the right. rotation of the ORs and the uh, the uh, adaptation time. Thank you. <laughs> um, is that actually what limits the size of the organs? No, that's, I don't think that's what limits it, actually. Um, Solari and John Kessler, Arizona, and Rick Michaud, who was visiting here also, did an interesting calculation of basically asking about all the hydrodynamic issues, including staying up uh, against gravity. And actually, they came up with an estimate that it would be pretty hard to, knowing the forces that the flagella exert, it would be pretty hard to be larger than about five millimeters uh, and stay up against gravity. And that's Bolox gigas, which is the largest, is, is a few millimeters in size. So that probably limits it, because these have to be able to make daily excursions in the water column from the region where there's lots of light down, lower down, to where there are appropriate nutrients. So it goes up and down in the water column. If it can, it won't so survive. Yeah. You, you showed that movie of uh, Volvox of different sizes rotating in the same direction, very close to each other, right. as if they didn't care about the shear well, between their that's an interesting point. I mean, this is not how you would make gears. Um, 
right? Because it sort of would shield. Could, could you say some more about that? It's kind of a difference between the Taylor view of optimizing based on passive hydrodynamic or, or not looking at mechanisms. Okay, so the distance of closest approach that you see here is just about the size of the flagella, mm -hmm. 10 microns or so. So actually, it, it is interesting. We're, we're sort of thinking about studying this in detail to understand exactly what's going on there. But it's a problem in lubrication theory. So you have this, this strong shear flow, but you have uh, a very narrow gap. So actually, if you want to understand the precession around here, you can wheel out lubrication theory and pretty much understand it. But, but surely, it's affecting the beating of the flagella themselves by being so close. So that makes it complicated, but interesting. Two more questions. So one is, uh, I think you mentioned the bad So is there synchronization between uh, cilia and different somatic cells? Right, okay, so I, I didn't actually mention this. I, I sort of hinted that there might be. And what we discovered recently actually is that this organism displays what are called metachronal waves. So metachronal waves are these long wavelength modulations of, of the beating pattern of flagella or cilia that are well known on other ciliates like paramecium. It's also seen in fallopian tubes and our respiratory system, it's everywhere. So it's like a Mexican wave in a stadium. <laughs> yeah, basically. So everybody would be beating in sync except that think of a, a, a linearly varying phase shift so you get these traveling waves. And um, so, so it's a long wavelength phenomenon. You might fit three or four wavelengths on the whole organism. And we think this is potentially an interesting model for studying these metachronal waves because the origin of the, the wavelength of that has been a huge mystery. And it's very difficult in other organisms to understand it because the cilia are so close together that it's, it's a very strongly interacting system. But here they're far apart. And so we've, we and others have, have tried to use these elastohydrodynamic models to understand what could give rise to the phase shift. And it, it seems that one possibility is, again, this no-slip wall effect on the flows around the individual flagella that can lead to, to a downstream asymmetry that gives rise to a phase shift. So it's synchronization, but with a twist. So I guess the second uh, half of that question was, uh, but how about calcium uh, coupling between the cells? Well, with somatic? So early on, you said that the, there are so somatic junctions. Yeah, so uh, there are two types of volvox. There are those for which the cytoplasmic bridges that are present early remain to the adult, and there are those, the majority of which, do not remain in the adult. So these have no cytoplasmic bridges between them in the adult stage. But the behavior of these two, at least as far as anybody's really studied it, is pretty much identical. So it seems unlikely that calcium discussion between cells is actually responsible. Um, but calcium is still, in some way, implicated in the internal regulation of each. What breaks the left-right symmetry? Is there, are there some molecules that are chiral or something? Or yeah, um, I, I just hired a postdoc to help try to figure this out because it's really, it's really quite interesting. But I think the answer actually goes back to the structure of the embryo. That is, when the, when the um, cell divisions have occurred and you first form this thing, the, the cells pack in a chiral way uh, that has to do with their, just their body shape, basically. And it's, it's possible it's just inherited from that. But I don't understand, getting back to David's question about you know, how, does, how is this maintained, how is this maintained as this extracellular matrix is added with such accuracy? Now, there are um, rotation mutants that go the other way, but they're very rare. I mean, it's a very accurate system that always produces this unique direction of rotation. And, and I, I just waved my hands in response to your question. I, we don't understand it.
So I'm sort of a simple question. I mean, at some several points, Ray, you talked about timing mechanisms related to the viscosity of the environment. Now, I don't think the viscosity of is very constant over the earth and the water, so there's big variations, I think. Does that play a role in, in evolution and things like that? Well, in some ways it can. So for instance, um, you know, the, I mentioned at the beginning that the, the flagella here are like Vasily and you and me. Uh, but of course, the, the mucus environment in our respiratory system is it's non-Newtonian, it's viscous, it's very viscous, first of all, and non-Newtonian. Uh, and this is partly what's responsible, we think, everyone thinks, for the particular waveform that's developed. I mean, it, it's called a power stroke, a recovery stroke that allows you to push fluid and then kind of sneak back without a lot of backflow. But interestingly, it's pretty much the same waveform here as it is in here. So um, I don't, that's a good point. I don't really understand why the waveform is so highly conserved, but it, 